Hello listeners, and welcome back to Teaching with Magic. Thank you for sticking around and patiently waiting while I took the time over the last month to find my feet. It's been a very busy time, and it's taken up a lot of my energy. But believe me when I say that I haven't stopped thinking about the podcast and finding ways to bring the magic of reading to all of you. I also want to extend a big thank you to Dr. Joe Torres, who graciously shared his ideas for a guest post series on the Teaching with Magic website. If you haven't seen the guest post, it's a wonderful series on modern Arthuriana and examples of anachronistic teaching in T.H. White's The Once and Future King and Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. You can find his posts on teachingwithmagic.blog, and you're welcome to share your thoughts by posting comments or emailing us at contact at teachingwithmagic.blog. I would also like to extend a big thank you to our first Patreon subscriber, Stephen May. Stephen, thank you so much for your contribution to the Teaching with Magic project. Before we begin this episode, I have an announcement that I would like to make. If you've been keeping up on our social media posts, you'll have noticed that I put out a call to subscribers to contribute to Jordan Rennell's Kickstarter for his next big soundscape project. You may recall that Jordan was a guest on episode 6, The Magic of Soundscape, and the two of us talked about interpreting text through audio media. We also proposed the idea of hosting a class on creating soundscapes. Well, I'm happy to say that thanks to the contributions and generosity of fans all over the world, Jordan's dreams of creating a soundscape for Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Silmarillion are coming true. One of the prizes for these fundraising efforts included an add-on called Teaching with Magic the Soundscape, where Jordan and I are teaming up to teach a workshop masterclass. In this class, you can learn how to create your own soundscape or how to use soundscapes as a potential project with your students. And we will be using C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe as our master text for the course. If you'd like to learn the ins and outs of creating a soundscape, just reach out to us at contact at teachingwithmagic.blog with the subject line soundscape, and we will get you all set up. Now to the topic at hand. Today's episode is a solo adventure. And I wanted to take the time today to explain exactly what I do in the primary world and the various ways that I work to link my day job with my research here at Teaching with Magic. In the first episode of this podcast, I shared my adventure in the teaching world and my discovery of the science of reading. Learning about the science of reading and the foundations of language drastically changed my approach to teaching reading and I began to see parallels between my work as a literature major at Signum University and the science behind learning to read. I wrote a post on the blog several months ago introducing the concept, and I would like to share some of it with you today. My hope is that by the end of this episode, you will see how all of my work links together and the various ways that fantasy, language, and brain science all connect and can help all readers of all ages. So, what is the science of reading? In the last few years, the science of reading has gotten attention from schools, school board members, curriculum designers, and literacy teachers all across America. 
Some call it the latest buzzword or fad, while others say it's essential for reading instruction. For the last 20 years, it has been the subject of critical studies and research, and it has also been heavily criticized by those in favor of other reading movements, such as the whole language approach and reading recovery. But what is the science of reading and why is it such a hot topic among teachers? The science of reading is an interdisciplinary study of scientifically based research on how we read. It has elements of cognitive neuroscience, psychology, education, and linguistics. This definition is from the Reading League. All of these elements have led scientists, psychologists, and teachers to conclude that students need systematic, explicit instruction in order to successfully read. In other words, students need to learn the foundations of word recognition, that is, letters and their sounds, phonics concepts, and sight recognition, and language comprehension, that is, syntax, vocabulary, background schema, in order to be successful readers. That sounds obvious, no? But unfortunately, the last 20 years of reading instruction in America have not included explicit instruction in these concepts. Instead, American schools, school boards, and districts have spent hundreds of millions of dollars investing in programs that encourage inferencing, memorization, and guessing in an effort to make the content more interesting and engaging for students. Curriculum designers like Lucy Calkins, Fountas and Pinnell, and others emphasized that students needed to fall in love with the act of reading put enough interesting books in front of them, or show them colorful, engaging pictures, then reading will eventually come naturally to them. This came from a false premise that reading does come naturally in the brain. Many of the texts in these programs, especially in the early lessons, had predictable, repetitive sentences and pictures to match the texts, which in essence taught students how to guess what came next. If I put a story in front of you that read, the dog is red, the dog is blue, the dog is brown. With pictures to match, you would learn the pattern. But what you wouldn't learn was how to recognize the word dog in a separate text, and most especially in a text with no pictures. This results in kids appearing to know how to read in kindergarten to second grade. But really, they know how to make predictions and guesses. They don't know how to connect sound with the text, and they don't know how to make meaning out of the weird squiggly lines we call the alphabet. Let me put it to you another way. You know the ABC song, right? But what happens when you get to L-M-N-O-P? When my mom was little, she thought L-M-N-O was one letter. She heard the names of the four letters squished together and assumed that it was one. She certainly didn't know that L says ol, or that it had meaning once you put it together with additional letters. Now, as an adult, she knows that the letter, the graphene, the physical representation of the letter, translates to the sound ol when she sees it or hears it. But she needed to orthographically map that letter in her head. She needed to look at the letter over and over again and practice the sound 
so that when she saw it again in a brand new context, she would be able to recognize it and make meaning out of it. Now she has a whole plethora of knowledge to accompany that letter. And she knows that when ol goes with ion, I-O-N, it spells lion, which is an animal with a mane, if it's male, that roars. And with additional social and religious context, she knows that that particular animal is a symbol slash allegory of Jesus, thanks to C.S. Lewis and the Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe. First, she learned the letter name, L. Then she learned the sound, O. Then she learned the symbol that goes with that sound. It's important to think about reading practices as helping build connections in the brain so students can read the word in the future. Words are anchored in memory by connecting pronunciations of phonemes, that is, sound units, to written spellings. We're connecting phonemes, sounds, to graphemes, the letters. When children see the word cat, they know that k is represented by the c, a is represented by the a, and is represented by the T. They are connecting the known, the sounds, to the new, the print. That's decoding. Then she had to learn to encode, put the letters and the sounds together, cat. Right now, I have several students who cannot encode. They know the sounds of their letters, but putting those sounds back together and making meaning out of them is hard. They can say, but they'll put it back together as something entirely different. Banana. And that's just the first level of language. One day I'll get into the brain science behind this. But for now, what's important to know is that language is made up entirely of units of meaning. These sounds, letters, morphemes, words, sentences, and paragraphs, they're all built together to create meaning. There are two visual models that can help aid in understanding how the brain learns to read. I'll describe them as best as I can, but you can also Google them or take a peek in my Science of Reading blog post. Here's the simple version, aptly titled The Simple View of Reading. It's a perfect distillation of how reading works presented as a mathematical equation, and it's been around since about 1986. In order to read, truly read, you must be able to decode letters and sounds, and you must be able to understand the context behind what you're reading. Decoding multiplied by language comprehension equals reading. In order to build strength in decoding, also known as word recognition, we teach phonics and phonemic awareness. That's when I work on sounds, letter combinations, digraphs and blends, rhymes, and etc. with my students. I often do this through drills such as A, apple, A, B, ball, B. Other times it's C, H says CH, or P, H says F. I'm building those connections between the sounds, what they hear, and the letters, what they see. 
Now, we build strength in language comprehension, the other half of the equation, by teaching vocabulary, syntax, and text structure. Why does this matter? Because the whole language movement, and thus the last 20 years of reading instruction, was only focusing on the language comprehension side. But if students can't or don't understand the letters, their sounds, and how to put them together, they're not going to comprehend what they are reading. Conversely, if students have no problem decoding words but can't summarize, interpret, or make meaning out of what they read, then they're not really reading. Another model of reading is known as Scarborough's Reading Rope, developed by Dr. Hollis Scarborough in the 90s and provided as a helpful visual for teachers and parents. In this model, there are two ropes that slowly curl around each other. Each of the two ropes is woven together with several strands. One rope woven together with three strands represents word recognition. Each strand says phonological awareness, sight recognition, and decoding. That's the decoding rope. The other rope, language comprehension, has five strands. Background knowledge, vocabulary, language structure, verbal reasoning, and literacy knowledge. Over time, the strands of the individual ropes and the two ropes together weave together more tightly. This represents the progression of learning, practicing, and making these concepts automatic over time. As an adult, I don't need to sound out C-A-T in order to make meaning out of a handbook for rearing orphaned kittens. But students need explicit, systematic processes over time in order to make decoding automatic, and they need strategic methods to help them make meaning and comprehend their texts. What do they need in order to learn to make meaning out of a fiction versus a nonfiction text? Who is the text about? And what specific vocabulary will help them understand exactly what this text is about? As Scarborough said, the rope allows us to talk about a concrete thing, a rope made of strands, as a metaphor for what research has shown to be important for becoming a good reader. If any of the strands get frayed, it can hold back the development of other strands and by extension can eventually weaken the entire rope. Teaching students to love books is great. Don't get me wrong. But explicit instruction needs to come first. We are seeing the results of programs like Reading Recovery and the Whole Language Movement are proving problematic for all readers including those with learning disabilities. These programs forgot about decoding and focused wholly on language comprehension. But as any mathematician will tell you, one times zero is still zero. Without decoding, we can't achieve comprehension. Many students, myself included, learned phonics and phonemic awareness without problems. My mom gave me reading lessons at night in addition to my school teachers. Plus, I enjoyed reading, so it never felt like a chore. But because it came easily to me, I mistook it for coming to me naturally. I still needed to learn the code. I just happened to enjoy putting in the time and effort. Many students don't learn the code, or their brains make it harder 
to access the code. But the code still needs to be learned in order to read. So that's my job. I teach the code to my students and I teach them how to make meaning out of that code. I give them multiple access points to the code and I remind them that their brains don't automatically know the code. Many of them believe that because they can't read or they have trouble reading, that means they're dumb. But what they don't realize is that our brains are not naturally wired for reading. They're only naturally wired for speaking and listening. They need to learn how to make meaning out of those squiggly lines through active, explicit instruction. Their brains aren't going to do it for them until they teach their brains to do it. But wait, this is a fantasy account. What does the science of reading have to do with wizards and Gandalf and hobbits? Well, that's exactly it. J.R.R. Tolkien talks about language in these very units. That was his day job. When Tolkien created his various languages, including Sindarin and Quenya, he didn't just think of random syllables, random sounds, and smash them together in order to make a language. That's not a language. In order to do so, he needed to create sounds that made meaning together to make words that made meaning. And eventually, he created a writing system, that is, the Tengwar, and eventually Kirth, Angerthas, etc., in order to represent these sounds. This, of course, provides an entire history behind the Elvish races. If we were to take a look at Tolkien's Appendix F in The Lord of the Rings, he explains how all of these sounds, these units, are put together. Whether it's Numenorean languages, whether it's the Elvish languages, he describes them in these same terms. When he talks in his note on translation in Appendix F, he talks about the history of the peoples and the linguistic setting in which we've translated the Red Book. Common speech as the language of the hobbits of their narratives eventually became modern English. This is a fictional representation of a similar process that happened in the real world. Once upon a time ago, we had Old English. Old English eventually became Middle English, which became Modern English. And Old English, as we know, as many of us know, was comprised of many different languages, or the roots of many different languages, including Germanic, Latin, Greek, and eventually French. So when I teach The Hobbit, I spend some time on some of Tolkien's philological work. I show them words in Sindarin that have the same roots. For example, for example, Branduin and Kelduin, Arid Mithrin and Arid Lurin, and their translations. Much like Tolkien would have in his philological work, we use the clues within these roots and their translations to work backward and determine what these roots might mean. Uin, for example, in Branduin, means river, and Arid in Arid Mithrin or Arid Luin means mountain. Myth means gray, so we can conclude that Arid Mithrin means the gray mountains. I also give my students a short activity for creating their own invented language with prompts to consider. 
what roots or root words exist in their language. How does your language indicate plurals? Is there an S or an ES at the ending? Do we repeat a sound more than once? And then finally, how does the writing system work in their language? Is it an alphabetic system like ours? Does each individual letter represent an individual sound? Or does the image represent an idea? Just like in Korean Hangul or in Japanese kanji. Greek, Latin, and Old English roots work similarly in the English language. Reading specialists and science of reading experts practice with these roots all the time. It's part of teaching phonemic awareness and word recognition. I know if I see the Greek root bio, it's going to have something to do with the study of life, like biology. So understanding and noticing these patterns within word roots, plurals, prefixes, and suffixes are critical for students to successfully decode words, but they need explicit instruction in order to get there. It's my working theory that we teachers can use invented languages to teach students about patterns in English morphology. This is just the beginning of my research into connecting the science of reading to fantasy literature. I do have several posts on my website about linguistics and word patterns. This was written back in December of 2020, a guest post series called Planting Linguistic Seeds with Tolkien's The Hobbit. There's part one, part two, and part three, all written by James Tauber of the, of the Digital Tolkien Project. You can take a look at those by going to teachingwithmagic.blog and searching them up on the search engine. Well, folks, that's all the time I have for today. Next week, we're going to have a special guest, Dr. Andy Higgins, who also works in Invented Languages, and he was the co-editor of J.R.R. Tolkien's famous lecture, A Secret Vice, along with Professor Dimitri Femi. I'll see you next time, and remember to keep making magic.